0: Our scripture reading for today comes from Psalm 95, verses 1 through 11. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years, I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. This is the word of the Lord.
1: As we go into the series, we've been, we've been doing a brief series at the beginning of every year since we've launched because we are a very young church. It's a series on our values, the core values of Metro Presbyterian Church. And there are five values. And so there is, in a sense, uh, five sets of sermons that we're preaching, very, very brief sermons, uh, sermon sets, that is. Today we're focusing on the gospel-centered vision of our church, what it means to get the gospel. And this is a very classic text on worship, Psalm 95. It's a passage that traditionally has been known as the Venite, in Latin, that means, oh, come, because it was a, it's a call for people to worship. For centuries, the Christian church has looked at this text in particular into this psalm to learn everything we need to learn about what worship is. It's probably the most comprehensive chapter in the entire Bible on the meaning of worship and what it is. And this is very important. Why? Because so many people today profess that they have faith in God, profess that they believe in God, And yet they struggle with that showing up in their character. How does it show up in my character? In a sense, you have faith and beliefs and you have these doctrines, what we call doctrines. That's in many ways like the operating system of our lives. And then you have character, which is much like the application that sits on these operating systems in our lives. But we lack the middleware. We lack the thing that draws us from the operating system into our application. We can't get there. If you want a character that mirrors your faith, your whole person, inside and out, has to be engaged. It's worship. That's what this text is going to teach us today. Three things what worship is, why we need to worship, why we worship, and lastly, how we worship. The what of worship, the why of worship, the how of worship. First, we're going to go into the what of worship. What is worship? Worship is the act of ascribing ultimate value to something in a way that engages all of you, your entire being, your whole person. If you look at this text, there are three calls here, three distinct calls. Verses 1 and 2, sing, shout for joy, shout aloud with thanksgiving, You see, extolling the Lord, there's music and there's song. In essence, worship has an emotional dimension to it. You worship with emotions. But then you see verse 6, it says, Come, kneel, bow down. There's this submissive, willful act, obedience act of worship. We're actually kneeling, the act of doing something. And then you have verse 7 where the psalmist says, Hear. He is appealing to history. He's appealing to your intellect. He says, hear and remember Maribah and Massa." The psalmist is calling us to think with your mind, to process what happened, to accept something, to understand, to not ignore something. Worship, in essence, is done with your emotions. The whole of your emotions, the whole of your will, submission, bending your will, and lastly, all of your mind. And that's not a surprise because what is the greatest commandment? Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. Worship is to ascribe ultimate value to something in a way that engages all of you. That's very important because if you've been through any type of ritual in your life and you affirm the doctrines, but you haven't experienced the sense of beauty, the joy in it all, then you haven't really worshiped you haven't really worshipped. If you agree with the doctrines, if you, but you're unable to really grieve about your sin, emotionally grieve about your sin, and be joyful about God's grace, you haven't really worshipped. Or if, you have, if you've had an emotional experience in your life, you're singing and you're lifting hands and you're joyful, but your life hasn't really changed, you haven't bent your will, submitted your will to it, you haven't really worshipped. You see that? If you're bowing and you're, uh, you're kneeling, that is, if you're obeying God, but there's no emotional content there. It hasn't moved you. You haven't been moved into doing it. There hasn't been a, a deep consideration. You haven't processed, in a sense, to a point where you can obey, then you haven't really worshipped. You see, all of your emotions, all of your doctrines, all of your understanding, all of the bending of your will. On one hand, the psalmist is doing all these things. He's calling us to do these things. But why does he say that? Why does he call us to do that? And he says in verse 7, the key, this is the key. He says, for he is our God. We are his sheep. We are his people. We are the sheep under his care. Verses 3 to 7, the psalmist is taking inventory of the greatness of everything that God is, the beauty of everything that God is. And by the time you get to verse 7, what he's saying, he's, he's talking, he's giving you an inventory of everything that God is, the greatness of God, the beauty of God, why we need to sing to him and come before him and kneel before him, why we need to hear him, and he's excited and he's, and he's overwhelmed with joy, and he's saying, we must submit, we must kneel, why? Because he's taken inventory of the greatness of God, and it's moved into emotions, and it's shaped his will and his mind, and he's recounting and he's reflecting throughout history. Who God is, how personal he is, how loving he is, how gracious he is, and it's dawned on him and exploded in him, and it's got to dawn on you. You haven't worshipped until it has. It's got to dawn on you. Jesus, our God is the pearl of great price. Our God is that treasure that's hidden in the field that Jesus talks about in that parable in Matthew. Jesus, in the book of Matthew, tells a story, this parable, about a merchant who finds this pearl. And he comes across this pearl. Now, this is a pearl merchant. He understands the worth of pearls. And he comes across this one pearl that is such great worth that it's worth selling everything that he has to have it. Jesus is that pearl. God is that pearl of great price. This psalmist, it dawns on him how valuable, The Lord is. How much of a treasure this relationship with the Lord is. And he's willing to give up everything for it. And the psalmist is saying, this is God. It blows him away, the beauty of God. It overwhelms him, the greatness of who God is. It shapes him. It shapes his will. He says, you must change. You must give up everything for this. Worship, again, is the act of reorienting your entire person around something that is of ultimate value in your life. If you think about the Ten Commandments, the first commandment says what? You will have no other gods before me. This is God speaking to his people. He says, you will have no other gods before me. In other words, I am above everything, me above all. Ultimate value. Worship is the act of recounting, looking at history, looking at your history, looking at biblical history. Being overwhelmed by God's goodness and his faithfulness and his love. Reflecting on his beauty, reflecting on God's character, the work of his hands, and to be shaped by those truths. To let those truths reside as the center of who you are, the center of your worth. That's what worship is. Now, second, why do we worship? Why is it so important for us to worship God? And here's why. Scripture is very clear that if you're not worshiping God, You're already worshiping something else. Right now, all of us in this room are ascribing ultimate value to something in our lives. Now, the average person will come to me and say, well, that's not really true because I'm not religious and I don't even worship. I don't go to church. I don't even worship. And there's nothing further from the truth. Think about this. Everybody builds their life. Everybody gives their heart. Everybody sets their hope on something. Everybody puts hope in something. Every one of us lives for something. Whether it be your career or the loves of your life or the welfare and the safety of your children. Maybe just getting power or influence or keeping a family healthy and intact. If you're saying, I have to have this in my life, because if I have this, then I have meaning. It could be a material possession or it could be something such as just having influence. If I have this in my life, then I'm worth something. Then I have meaning. Then I have joy. That is the thing that you worship. That is the thing you worship. That is your God. That is your functional idol in life. And that which we worship shapes us. That which we worship controls us, masters us. It's the thing that you go to find satisfaction. It's the thing that you get. you're willing to sacrifice everything you've got. Because it determines your worth. It's worth sacrificing time and money and your resources, sometimes sacrificing friendships and relationships. All of your effort to hold on to this one thing, if that thing gets damaged, oh, you're damaged, you're hurt. If that thing gets threatened, then you are absolutely dissatisfied and discontent. If that thing is lost, then you are in despair. What do you fear losing most in your life? It's very concrete. Think about think about the concrete thing in your life that you're most afraid of losing. What is the thing in your life that preoccupies you the most, that you daydream about? What is what do you spend most of your money? What is the most non-negotiable thing in your schedule? All the other things in your schedule you're willing to fidget and work through, but I'm not willing to negotiate. Thing, that thing. That's to say that my life is shaped by that. My life is being shaped by the things that we worship. In fact, the very word worship comes from a Latin phrase or a Latin word, worth shape, meaning that we're being shaped by the value or the worth of that thing in our lives. That's what worship is, and that's why we worship, because the psalmist is calling us to worship God, because if you're not worshiping God, you're worshiping something else. And this is precisely why the passage says we should worship the Lord our God because he is the great king above all gods. That's what it says in the psalm. Very specific meaning. Think about this. In ancient times, people living in a polytheistic society, not too different from today in a sense, meaning that they have many gods, they worship many, many things in their lives, and they had idols to represent all the things that they worshipped. So in a given home, you would have idols of wood, idols of stone, idols of silver or gold. And those things represented your, your f- fertility or having children or your job being the harvest, the rains that would come down, your family or your safety or protection. These things were the things that they worshipped. Today, we've traded in those physical idols for idols of the heart, idols in the form of money and wealth, Idols in the form of sex and power. Idols in the form of approval or love or worth. The psalmist says, Worship the Lord our God. He is our maker. We are his people. We are the sheep, the flock under his care. In other words, he is our maker and he is our shepherd. Worship is... To worship is to recognize already that you've already ascribed something else in your life of ultimate value. And to worship the Lord is to transfer that, that ultimate value and worth, finding ultimate value and worth in something, to transfer that into the Lord, into the Lord our God. And it only happens when you see the ultimate worth of God, that he is your pearl, that he is your treasure, And when God's love is more satisfying, more valuable, greater than anything else, that's the thing. That's when the Lord shapes you. There's an old movie in the 80s called Some Kind of Wonderful. And uh, it stars uh, some pretty obscure characters today, I suppose. Uh, Eric Stoltz, he played uh, this character named Keith who worships, he just worships, you know, these guys are high school students. And he's in love. He worships Amanda, played by Leah Thompson. And uh, he's got this best friend who's trying to help him get into, you know, get in with this girl. Uh, his friend is Watts, played by Mary Stewart Masterson. So you have Eric Stoltz, who's in love with Leah Thompson, and Mary Stewart Masterson, who's this kind of tomboyish drummer character, who, who kind of helps him out. And all through the movie, he's just doing whatever it takes to get in with this girl. But then what happens? At some point in the movie, he realizes... That his best friend, this best friend who's been helping him uh, to win the affections of Amanda, is this beautiful woman, and that actually she's the one. She's under his nose all all this time, and he he, he realizes at some point in the movie this is the one. And so he falls in love with her, and then you know what happens in 80s movies the, the music starts to play, and that's when you know that the turning point in the movie happens, and then there's always that random guy in the back who starts clapping for no reason, right? That's what happens in 80s movies. But, uh, and I, always, I was always confused because you figured that you're waiting for the guy to clap to know that that, you know, that, the, that person will be the one for me, and it took me you know, 35 years to get married myself, right? Um, the point is this when you don't realize who you're, when you don't realize the beauty, it's only when you see the beauty the sacrifice and the love of the person when you recognize that this is the person all along in my life this is the person this is the one you know you come across this old gem something that's been passed down to you over the years and you you take it to a jeweler and the jeweler puts that you know thing in his eye to examine the jewel this is a person who's skilled in examining jewels a gemologist and as he's examining, all of a sudden, he starts to gasp for air. And he starts to quiver. And he drops the eyepiece. And he, and he kind of braces himself. And he says, do you realize what you have? This is worth millions. And then you start to quiver and your knees start to shake. Why? Because this thing that's been gathering dust on your shelf, you realize it's that amazing jewel, the thing that in many ways, you know, you didn't realize how precious and beautiful it was, right? It's only until you see how beautiful and how precious it is that it starts to shape you. And only when, you don't worship God because God needs it. But you worship God because, number one, we're designed to worship things that are beautiful in our lives. And the only way to transfer our worship from a lesser beauty to something that is of greater beauty is to be captivated to recognize the greater worth, the greater beauty of that thing. The psalmist says, worship the Lord our God. Because he, and he says the reason, because he is the great king above all gods. He is greater. You've been valuing these things and they're not going to save you. You've been valuing these things all your life. You try to find worth in these things, be it love or approval, even concrete things like your children. He says those things are not going to save you. It's only going to make you work. It's only going to bring you down at times. Worship the Lord, the great king above all gods. He is more majestic more powerful, more beautiful. We're designed to worship Him. We're designed to worship Him the way the fish in the seas need water, the way we gasp for air when we don't have it. We're designed to worship Him, to give ourselves to Him, to give ourselves to anything else. What happens to a fish when he's out of water? He starts to corrode. That's what happens. You know, for many, God, God is a lot like That drummer in some kind of wonderful. Watts. He goes unnoticed. He's kind of under our nose all the time. We go to worship. We have our Bibles with us. But uh, his beauty is hidden from us. And so you see him, but you don't really see the ultimate value of who God is. You don't really see him. He speaks to you, maybe daily, maybe weekly. He speaks into you, but you don't really hear how precious that voice is. And that's the reason why his worth hasn't shaped you. The beauty hasn't made your eyes wide. It hasn't brought you joy. It hasn't made your lips quiver. It hasn't made your knees knock. So if you're failing in self-control, if you're you're constantly preoccupied by other things, you know, by your marriage or by your children's needs or by your career, You know, it's socially acceptable to say that, hey, I'm preoccupied by my children's lives. I'm preoccupied by my career. It's socially acceptable to say that I'm preoccupied by those things. But it's also corrosive. You're like that fish that's out of water. Some of us haven't breathed fresh air in a long, long time. And you need it to live. Think about it. Why do we lie? You know why we lie? Why do we act fake? You know why we do that? It's because what you're really saying is if I'm not perceived a certain way by this person, at that moment, then I'll be in despair. If I'm not looked upon a certain way by this person, then at least at that moment, my life is meaningless. My life has less meaning. And so, what do we do? We lie, we become fake. That's what happens. We try to keep up with this image. If God's love, if God's approval, if God's acceptance of us is sufficient, then the approval of other people, the criticism of other people wouldn't devastate us. The approval of other people wouldn't make us. You see that? So you see what worship is, ascribing ultimate value and worth to something that engages your whole person. And you see why we worship. It's because really we're designed to worship. If you're not worshiping the Lord, who's the great king above all gods, then we're worshiping something else. How do you worship? The last point, how do you worship? How do you practice this? This passage teaches us a few things about that. First, it teaches us you worship in community. In community. Look at the text. He says, let us sing. Let us shout aloud. He's the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him. Let us bow down. Let us kneel. He is our God. We are his people. You cannot worship God outside the context of community. You will never experience God fully in all his dimensions unless you're singing corporately, unless you're worshiping corporately, unless you're confessing corporately, unless you're hearing his word, corporately, in that context. Otherwise, you're always going to get some distorted view, some distorted dimension of God, an incomplete dimension of who God is. You've got to plug into community groups. This is my plug for that. You've got to get involved in community groups. You've got to use your gifts. You've got to use your resources to serve as an usher, to serve in some way, shape, or form in worship. If you have talents in music, get involved in that. You've got to plug in, get trained, learn, hear together, learn together. You've got to learn what it means to sacrifice together, to give together. Now, I know a lot of people who want to serve who really don't care a whole lot for training. They say, oh, I want to serve. Oh, but, but, you know, I don't really want to take the time out of, out of my precious time to learn, to train. You see, I don't care what you know personally as a pastor. I don't really care what you know. It's about what you're corporately learning what you're corporately, what you're learning as a body. Otherwise, you're not going to experience the full dimensions, the many dimensions of who God is. I don't care how long you've been a Christian. If you're not really coming in and plugging into community, then you're not going to feel like you're plugged into community. Does that make sense? I think that makes sense, right? If you try to change on your own, you know, so many people come to me and say, I lack self-control. If you try to change on your own, without a church body, without community in your life, it's not going to work. It's just not going to happen. Now, the problem in our generation today is that we tend to blame God for that. Because if I'm not changing, God must not exist, you see. But the word here says, he is the great king above all gods. What is wrong with your worship? That's actually the question. Now, so the first thing we do, we practice in community. The second thing we do is there's order and there's structure. There's regularity. There's, uh, you see, there's, there's there's a rhyme and there's reason to this passage. The psalmist, he's not just emotionally just writing things out. You know, that's not what he's doing with these intense feelings about God that's overwhelmed him. So he's scribbling all these beautiful things about God that, although it is beautiful, and he's certainly saying a lot of things out of intensity and emotional intensity, but it's, you know, worship is not less than feelings. It's certainly at the least feelings, but there's so much more than that. And it can't be worship unless there is more than that. If you look at this text, the first five verses, it's all about praise. Then there's this middle section in the text, it's all about confession. And then if you look at the last portion of that text, it's all about submission. Hear and remember all these things. And don't be this way because these people were disobedient. Don't follow in that way. It's all about submission. So you got this, you've, you've got praise and you've got confession and you've got submission and hearing and submission as a result in response. Does that remind you of anything? If you look at your bulletin, it's designed with a particular order and sequence. There's a praise component that starts off, leading into a portion of confession, which we've all done together, and then leading into a portion of hearing and responding. There's this regularity, we do this weekly. There's a structure, there's this order. These movements, very similar to the movements that exist in our bulletin, it shows that worship in many ways also, as much as you can worship freely on your own and personally, you do it with regularity. You do it with order. It's not just some emotional outburst. And that's part of the reason. We only tend to worship when we feel like doing it. But there's this regularity and this sequence and this order. Why do you need this? You know, a lot of people come to me, why do I need order? Why do we, we so structured? I don't like structure. I don't believe we need that kind of structure. Why can't we just be free? First of all, think about it. You would never say that to your financial planner. Here's my money. Dude, let's just be free with it. Let's just do anything we want. You know, let's not, we don't need structure or, or, or regularity or purpose. You know, just do anything you want with it. Be free. You would never say that to your financial planner. You would never say, you would never say that to somebody who's taking care of your children. How should I take care of your children? Oh, yeah, it doesn't matter. Just be free with them. Do anything you want. No structure, no nothing. They they don't need to go to sleep at any regular time, right? Don't you know? be fed at any regular time. Anything that's important to you has some level of regularity and purpose and structure. Think about it. Anything that you value has some level of purpose and regularity and order and structure to it. How much more then for an infinite God who is the great king above all gods? Our liturgy, Is a reminder of God's beauty and his greatness, praise. It's a reminder of our sinfulness, confession. It's a reminder of our of our need and a call to be thankful because of his grace. That's submission. Do you see that? So this is the greatest case that I'll ever make for us to be on time. It's not enough for you to just make it in time to hear the words that are preached up here because having more information, you know, having more information is not going to engage you and change your life. you got to experience all the dimensions together. Now, if you're late or if you need to leave early, you know, I'm not going to look down on you, right? Certainly never going to look down on you. But if you want worship to shape you, you know, One thing's for sure is that the information from the sermon by itself is not going to do it. That's for sure. And even if you do reorient your emotions and reorient your will and reorient your mind in the context of a body, on time, weekly, in a regular, sequential, orderly fashion, you're never going to truly worship outside of the context of resting in God. What does that mean? Because this is what the last portion, verses 7 to 11, is about. Today, if only you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as they did at Meribah, which means quarreling, arguing, right? And as they did at Massa, which means testing. They quarreled against me and they argued. They quarreled with one another and they tested me in the wilderness. The writer was referencing really... Back in history, in Exodus chapter 17, a time when the Israelites, who were very unfaithful, very rebellious, a rebellious generation that God had rescued from slavery, they were wandering in the desert for 40 years, and they worshipped false gods and false idols all through this time, and because they had hardened hearts, the psalmist ends, they are a people whose hearts have gone astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they will never enter my rest. Now why this beautiful psalm that has begun and progressed through, why does it end with such harsh language? This beautiful psalm that was written this way, why did he have to end it this way? And you don't really understand why he ends it this way until you come to the New Testament because the whole Bible hangs together. So here the psalmist started it and it isn't until you get to Hebrews chapter 4 verses 8 through 11. The author of Hebrews, I'm just going to read this portion. It's actually printed in your call to worship. Verses 8 to 11. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest the author of Hebrews is saying that we're still burdened. We're still carrying our lives on our backs. And why do we do that? It's because, look, think about this. If you still think that you're saved by your own works, that God will only be happy with you or pleased with you or will accept you by if you do good deeds and you kind of live up to his commandments and do the things that he has asked you to do, Then you're going to be desperate for approval from God, and you're going to be desperate for approval from other people as a result. You're going to be desperate for approval for your own sense of worth and feeling significant. That's why we're working hard in our careers, because we need approval from people above us. That concept of needing approval from people above us, whether it is your parent or your boss, starting from the moment you are practically born, is a cosmic search. That is a cosmic spiritual desperation. And it's because our worship, from the moment we are born, our worship has been distorted. And so the author says, their hearts have gone astray. We've gone completely off kilter. We've been designed to be one thing, and yet we've completely gone off kilter. Our train has gone off the tracks. And here we are, in our lives, working desperately for the approval of God, a cosmic thing. And the Sabbath, resting on the Sabbath, was designed, if that was designed for us to get rest from our physical work, then this concept of Sabbath, the rest that the author of Hebrews is really talking about, there still remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. What the author is saying is, if if physical rest helps you to rest from your work, then there is a spiritual rest that will allow you to rest from your cosmic spiritual work. Religion says, if I live a good life, then I can rest because God accepts me. And if you believe that, you're always going to be judging yourself. You're always going to be judging other people on their performance, on how they live, because your worth is based on your performance. But a living and vital faith in the gospel says, That you can only rest not because you've obeyed, not because you've lived up to God's commands, because we cannot. And even if you did, you're only as good as your last obedience. It's not because of anything that you've done or anything that you've earned, but only through faith in Jesus Christ alone. In other words, all of us here, the author is saying, all of us are tired. We're tired physically, we're tired emotionally, we're tired psychologically, we're tired spiritually. Jesus says in Matthew, Come to me, all you who are tired, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. Now, how did he do that? It's because Jesus Christ did the work for us. This is the reason why the psalmist says we need to sing. I mean, why is he so emotional? God is so good. He's overwhelmed by the faithfulness of God. Why do we sing? Why is he calling us to do this? He's saying, don't you see this? Can't you sing with me? Don't you see this? Don't you realize this? Isn't it, Doesn't this move you? This writer, he says, he is the rock of our salvation. He's calling Jesus our savior. He says, the sea is his. The sea, the oceans are his. Here's Jesus Christ walking on water, calming the storm, why do we sing? Why do we shout? Why do we bow down? Why do we listen when he says to hear? In Matthew chapter 7, after a series of teachings known as a Sermon on the Mount, Jesus kind of concludes. And he ends with this. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and, and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Evildoers! These people, these good people, he says you are evildoers. Why? Look what's happening here. The people are calling him Lord. In other words, they're reasoning with Jesus. They thought about it and they say, you are my king, Lord. They're using their minds. They're saying, Lord, Lord. That's a doublet. Anytime you see that Hebrew doublet in scripture, it's, it's, it's intense emotional language in reference to another person. In other words, they're crying, they're weeping, they're emotional, and they're saying, Lord, Lord. And what do they say? They asked, did we not do these things? They've bent their will. So you have emotions. And you have knowledge and thought in your mind and you have the will. And yet Jesus says, he didn't say, no, you didn't try hard enough. That's not what he said. He didn't say, you failed me. That's not what he said. He said, I never knew you. I never knew you. Going back to my original question, do you know why we sing? Why we shout? Why we bow? It's because we're known. Because that cosmic approval that you've been looking for, that we've been desperate for, the psalmist here says we are his. We are his people. We are the flock under his care. God looks at us like people who are like sheep, aimlessly always wandering. So even if you feel like you've got your act together, his view of you is you constantly need care, and yet he is your care. He is your shepherd. That's what he's saying. He says, we are the sheep of his pasture. This great God, this great king above all gods is our shepherd. That's an amazing thing. Look at the love of God, the grace of God, the gentleness of God, the patience of God, the grace of God. How does it happen? On the cross, what do you see? You see Jesus Christ And he's working and he's laboring and he's groaning on the cross and he's working and he's laboring and he's sweating. He's toiling on the cross and he's got unrest, no rest. Because Jesus Jesus received the eternal unrest that we deserve, the punishment that we deserved. The wrath of God was poured out on Christ And he's crying out and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's what he says. In other words, what he's saying is, this is the center of my worship. God is the center of my worship. And I've lost him. I'm in despair. That which I've engaged my entire person all my life has been lost to me. The love of God has been lost to me. And I'm experiencing the ultimate corrosion of my soul. I am like that fish that's out of water. I'm gasping. I'm gasping, and I'm desperate. And i been stripped of my soul, stripped of my joy, of my identity, of my approval. When he says, "My God, my God, why have you forsaken me?" He says the Lord. I, Lord, at one point looked at him. He said, "This is my son, whom I love." And now on the cross, he's saying, "I've lost that love. I've been forsaken. I've been forgotten." On the cross, Jesus experienced the ultimate unrest so that we could have rest. The only rest that we need, that soulful unrest, no matter how much sleep you get, you can't get this kind of rest lest Jesus Christ earns it for you. And what are the results? I mean, if you think about this, do you know on the cross as he's in anguish, as he's groaning, as he's work, working, he was still worshiping on the cross? my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was reciting Psalm chapter 22. He was literally, in a sense, doing his quiet time in his suffering, in his working, in his laboring, in his groaning. And Isaiah chapter 53 says that he will see the results of this and be satisfied. The ultimate rest is the satisfaction of our souls, meaning that even though he is being forsaken by God, Isaiah chapter 53 says he will be satisfied. And you know what he will be satisfied in? We are the results. Jesus on the cross having the vision of his people being rescued by God. To see us safe, that is the ultimate shepherd. To see us at rest, that is the ultimate shepherd. He said, I am satisfied. On the cross he said, it is. Is finished. The debt is paid. The transaction is made. Once and for all, it's over. When you take that truth and all of its implications, the love of God, and let that truth overwhelm you, overwhelm you, and overwhelm, you. just repeat it over and over into your heart until it overwhelms you. Will you not worship God? Will those other things that we've been worshiping and pursuing all our lives, we'll be putting it to rest? It will always be lesser because the Lord our God is the great king above all gods. Now, if you don't do that, what's going to happen? And the reason why we do that is because it marks the end of our work, the end of our work. You no longer have to labor because Jesus labored. You no longer have to work for approval because Jesus earned you the approval. You have the approval. Jesus was forsaken so that you could be accepted. If you don't do that, worship will always be mechanical. It will always be mechanical in your life. It's going to be like work. Everybody gets up in the morning and they do that routine. There's still regularity because it's valuable. It's important to you. There's still that sequence and order. But the thing is, it will always be mechanical because it's just work. But if the gospel takes hold of your life, you're going to be able to rest in Christ that's going to take something that was very mechanical at one point in your life and make it very organic. Because now you don't have to strive for peace because you have peace. Strive for acceptance because you have acceptance. Strive for love because you have love. And when you have acceptance and peace and love and approval, and you know that you're forgiven, and the grace of God has been poured on you because the wrath of God was poured on Christ, oh, Jesus becomes your treasure. Jesus becomes your love. Jesus becomes your rescuer. Jesus becomes your peace. And that love of God will captivate you and move you and overwhelm you to bend, overwhelm you to confess, overwhelm you to praise. Will it not? Once you see that you are the treasure of Christ, what he died for, Jesus becomes your treasure and it will captivate you and move you to let go of the other things that we've pursued, to worship wholly and freely until one day Christ will return and you can't worship anything else. Jesus will emerge and arise and come as the great king above all gods once and forever and we will be remade in that likeness in completion and we won't be able to worship anything else ever again. Will you pray with me? Let's pray.